welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs 29. The righteous care about justice for the oppressed, but the wicked have no such concern. From Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? (laughs) Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke to share your food with the hungry, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the impressed, then your light will rise in the dark, and your night will become like the noonday. And from 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. From Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice 
with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That song, Yahweh, by U2 is a song I absolutely love, and I love it as performed by Ryan Van Bono. That was obvious. That was great. That was great. Man, he is our version of Chris Martin and, you know, Bono and a lot of other people. So uh, that is tremendous. I love that song. I love what it says. I love the message behind it. I love the energy into, in it, uh, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I'm trying to get in the right spot so I'm not in front of the, front of the monitor there. Um, I was warned about that. Don't stand in front of that. Uh, I, now I love that song, but I'll have to admit there is one line of that song that I'm not naturally inclined to embrace, and that is the last line of the song. Take this heart, take this heart, take this heart, and make it break. I am not a big fan of having a broken heart. How about you? None of us, I think, like to have a broken heart, right? We, we want to avoid that. And here we are asking God to give us a broken heart. I mean, why in the world would we do that as even a right thing to do? Well, the title of today's message, with acknowledgement to Josh Garrels that I'm stealing a song title of his and using it as a sermon title, is A Time to Rejoice and Lament. We all have to admit that we all like the rejoicing more than the lamenting. And that's absolutely normal and good. It's absolutely appropriate. And as we go through the sermon today, you're gonna to see that we're gonna to talk today about not only the need to sometimes lament individually, but sometimes to lament as a group, to have what is called corporate lament, that we look at the whole team together and we say, we need to lament something. Now that's really, really weird, isn't it? Corporate lament. Uh, what in the world is corporate lament? Well, a few months ago, uh, best way to explain, a few months ago I went down to Brookhaven Presbyterian Church to hear my son preach, and I have to acknowledge that I now think I'm the third best preacher in my own family, okay? <laughs> so I went to hear him preach, and I didn't know what he was preaching on before I got there, but he happened to be preaching out of Psalms about, um, about corporate lament. And he used the best and most, I think, humorous illustration that we would understand what corporate lament. He said the best uh, experience that most of us in Metro Atlanta have about corporate lament occurred in January of 2017 when the Atlanta Falcons totally had a meltdown in the fourth quarter against the New England Patriots of the Super Bowl. If you're a Falcons fan, you remember it. We were under a cloud for about 24 hours, weren't we? That's corporate lament. And I want you to know it's not my fault we lost the game, all right? I didn't even dress out for that game. But I still lamented the loss and I still said we lost. Uh, that's a little bit of the idea of corporate lament. Now we may not really like to embrace this idea of lamenting individually or corporately, but I want you to know it is absolutely essential if we are to be what God calls us to be individually or together. We don't like it, but it's part of following Jesus. Let me give you some categories for lament. First of all, there is simply the lament of lamenting about the suffering and the hardships of other people. And that's primarily what we're gonna be talking about today, or at the very least what we're talking about. We just read the passage, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn or lament with those who mourn. If I've understood Romans 12 correctly, some of the commands of Paul there are singular and some are plural. It's individual lament, it's corporate lament. Jesus lamented over the city of Jerusalem. He wept for that city because they were, re they were rejecting him. And he knew what was about to happen to them in terms of suffering. So we can lament the suffering of other people. Secondly, we're called to lament our own sins. In the Old Testament, King David finally came to the point of confessing about his sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, who he had murdered, his sin against Israel and against the Lord. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a lamenting heart, O Lord, you will not reject. We lament the suffering of others. We lament our own sins individually. And then there is this thing of lamenting our team sin. Maybe we're, we realize we're part of a team that has sinned 
And so we start praying that we have sinned, not just that I have sinned. And sometimes that team consists of only people that are alive right now. And sometimes that team consists of people that went before us and the generations ahead of us. For example, when Ezra and Nehemiah brought the children of Israel back to the promised land after the Babylonian captivity, they pulled the people together to have serious periods of corporate lament, pressing, uh, confessing not only their own sins, but the sins of their forefathers. There are very few people in the Bible, Old Testament or New, that there's nothing bad said about them. Joseph is one and Daniel is another. But when the prophet Daniel saw the suffering of Israel in Babylon, he began to intercede for the Israelites. And as he did so, he started confessing our sin. This is what he said in Daniel 9. Oh Lord, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Faultless Daniel was saying we have sinned, we and our forefathers. So here's the truth of it. Lament, individually and corporately, is absolutely critical if we're to be people of love. Lamenting their suffering, care about, caring about their suffering, mourning with those who mourn is part of having gospel love. And on top of that, lamenting our sins individually and sometimes when appropriate, Confessing and lamenting the sins of the whole team is absolutely essential for us. And it leads us into the lap of our Savior who gives us forgiveness and transformation. Now, that's the role of lament. You see, there's, there's no holiness. There's no gospel joy. There's no gospel love without gospel lament. That's an often ignored truth, but it's a beautiful truth. Now, you may be wondering at this point, and if you're not, you should be, Bob, what are you really talking about today? Exactly what are the sufferings or the sins that you are calling on us to lament? And the best way to answer that question is to tell you the story. It's the story of a businessman here in Metro Atlanta, a very successful businessman. He's north of 60 in his age. He's conservative by every stripe of what you would call a conservative. If I understand the story correctly, a couple of years ago when a lot of us in our theological tradition were celebrating rightly the launching of the Protestant Reformation 500 years earlier, two years ago, when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg. He became aware that two years later, that is August of 2019, last month, would be the 400th anniversary of something that we should lament, a sad occasion. And that is 400 years ago last month is when the first people of African descent held as slaves, came to North America, brought to the colony of Virginia. If you're like me, you were not even aware that last month would have been the 400th anniversary of such a thing. And then learning more about it, I also learned these things that I had never really thought about. For 246 years, that is 60% of our history of Europeans being on this continent, the slave trade went on and slavery was there. And that was followed by 100 years of Jim Crow and 100 years of segregation. It's only been 54 years that we have lived in a post-civil rights era. And my friends, I didn't know it, never thought about it, but that only represents 13.5% of our old history here. Well, this brother, this businessman, heard a statement that rattled around in his heart and in his head, and it moved him to action. And frankly, he is a primary reason that we and 46 other churches in Metro Atlanta are today or last week lamenting this sad reality. And this is what rattled around in him and moved him to action. And it was this slavery and its repercussions, racism and its repercussions may not be your fault, but if you're a follower of Jesus, they are your problem to be addressed. Very well said. Slavery and its repercussions, racism and its repercussions may not be your fault, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then they are your problem to be addressed. And a question that gripped him and moved him to action is simply this question. Can we have what has broken the heart of God break our hearts? Wow. Can we just have what is breaking the heart of God, what has broken the heart of God, break our hearts, would we care that much about image bearers? 
We want you to know, the teaching team wants you to know, this for us is not a political issue. This is a scriptural issue. The only thing that really matters to us is this. Are we living under the word of God? And are we, are we living under the lordship of Jesus? Are we teaching the scriptures correctly? And if that is the case, then let the chips fall where they may. That's what matters. We are defined by the kingdom. And so here, we don't want you to miss it. Here is the main idea of today's message. It's the teaching of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles. And here it is. God has not called us to treat the poor, the oppressed, and people of a different race or ethnicity than we are in the same manner we treat everyone else. He has called us to do much more, to actively seek them out, love them, listen to them, learn from them, and serve them to an even greater degree. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. This is a necessary implication and expression of the gospel of grace. Any version of Christianity that does not include this in its teachings and in its actions falls short of the law of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Can we allow what has broken the heart of God to break ours? We know that we are wading into a topic here that is unfortunately politically charged in our culture. But our soon-to-be senior pastor, Jeff Norris, has asked me to ask this of you. Would you please hear this, not with political ears, but with gospel ears? We as followers of Jesus are defined by his kingdom. Everything else is judged in relation to how it affects the kingdom of Jesus. And all of our decision of what is right and wrong in this world are under the lordship of Jesus. It is his kingdom that matters. And as I begin this message, my friends, if you are already feeling a sense of resistance against this message for whatever reason, I want to ask you to ask God that he will give you a tender heart and listening ears and a kingdom perspective. And if you are finding yourself hearing this message and for any reason, there is in your heart a desire for revenge for whatever you have suffered from people from another ethnicity, whatever that would be. Let me ask you to take that, take that desire for revenge and put it at the foot of the cross and ask Jesus to be the judge and the Lord of all things. It's what we have to do. Today we're going to look at two questions. Most all of our time will be spent on the first one, and here's where we're going. Why do we not lament? Why have we not lamented? I think that's where the biggest gap of our understanding is. And then secondly, why should we and how can we properly lament? Oh, Lord Jesus, come and be with us now. We need you desperately. Lead us into your truth according to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First question is this, why do we not lament? And I think from my observations, there are three reasons. First of all, is an inadequate understanding of God's word. It always starts and ends with God's word. That is the plumb line for us. And what has contributed sometimes to our lack of lament is we haven't understood it very deeply. Earlier there was read for you Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor or the oppressed, but the wicked have no such concern. Let me tell you, I've been an evangelical a long, long time. I've never heard a sermon preached on that passage. I've never preached a sermon on that passage. And I've come to realize that all the texts that we had read for us today and many, many, many others have in our tradition been underpreached or almost totally ignored, or if applied, never applied to people outside our own little local congregation, and certainly never applied to people of another or different ethnicity. Why in the world has my generation and the generation before me left you with a misunderstanding and a lack of understanding of God's word? There are a couple of reasons, I think. First of all, toward the beginning of the 20th century was a divide between those who believed in the essential beliefs of Christianity and those who did not. There came to be those that were called the modernists who did not believe in the deity of Christ or his bodily resurrection or his substitutionary atonement or, or the inerrancy of God's word or all those things. And all they were left with was Christian morality and ethics. And they doubled down on issues of grace and mercy, or rather justice and mercy. And some people started calling that the social gospel. Then those that were Bible-believing Christians did exactly the opposite thing that they should have done. Instead of continuing to teach about our responsibilities to the poor and the needy, they backed off. They didn't want to be confused with the liberals and the social gospel people. So they ignored what God said. They did not teach the whole counsel of God. 
And 100 years later, a lot of us don't know a lot about God's word because we've had about 100 years of people not really teaching the whole Bible very well. The second reason is that even before that for a long time, for reasons I don't totally understand, this whole teaching of the scriptures that God has made us out of one race and though we were divided in so many different ways, the gospel brings us back together. Pentecost was the reversal of Babel. Churches in the New Testament were always multi-ethnic churches 100% of the time. God brings his people together across racial and cultural lines. Somehow that got lost. And even these teachings about poverty were never applied to the suffering of people of a different color. It got lost somewhere. And the result is we don't understand God's word very deeply. And it's our fault as teachers. You're going to see here on the screen the picture of Dr. Ligon Duncan. He is the president and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. Looks like a real radical progressive, doesn't he? Well, Ligon is exactly what he looks like, a conservative, reformed, Presbyterian pastor and professor. He has delivered a tremendous message in 2018 at a conference called Together for the Gospel. His message is called The Whole in Our Holiness, W-H-O-L-E. Let me encourage you to go online and listen to us. It's fantastic. Ligon also wrote part of a foreword to a book by a guy named Dr. Eric Mason, and this is his confession in the foreword to Dr. Mason's book. He says, I'm about the least woke person you could ever meet. I spent much of my life in a haze of relative cluelessness about and culpable indifference to many of the concerns that are addressed in this book. For instance, having grown up in South Carolina during the civil rights era, when I came to Jackson, Mississippi at the age of 29 to teach systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in the summer of 1990, the very first course I was asked to teach was pastoral and social ethics. Now, which you may ask, social issues that I choose to address in the course, abortion, check, homosexuality, check, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, check, medical ethics, check, just war, check, death penalty, check. What about racism? Mm, no. It did not even occur to me that this was a pastoral issue that I needed to prepare future ministers to address biblically in the church, much less in the communities that they would serve. How in the world could I have missed that? Dr. Duncan goes on in this forward and especially in that sermon to say the issue is Jesus' second great commandment. Jesus summarized the whole law, the Ten Commandments, to say it's basically about this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then love your neighbors yourself. That represents six of the Ten Commandments. And somehow, somehow for a long, long time, we did verbal gymnastics so that love your neighbors yourself did not apply to people who are ethnically or racially different from us. And somehow we ignored the suffering of image bearers who are African-American, brothers and sisters, and all too often we simply looked the other way and said we don't know what to do, it's not our problem. And all too often we actually supported and defended the oppression. My friends, how can we not lament? What we have needed instead has been more of what Dr. John Calvin once wrote. And I thank Professor Caleb Click for this quote. He did the research and passed it on. Hear what John Calvin said. We should not regard what a man is and what he deserves according to human standards, I think he means. We should go higher that it is God who has placed us in the world for such a purpose that we be united and joined together. He has impressed his image in us and has given us a common nature which should incite us to providing one for the other. The man who wishes to exempt himself from providing for his neighbors should deface himself and declare that he no longer wishes to be a man. For as long as we are human creatures, we must contemplate as in a mirror our face our own face and those who are poor, despised, exhausted, who groan under their burdens. If there comes some more or barbarian, that is someone not Western European, since he's a man, he brings a mirror in which we're capable, able to contemplate that he is our brother and our neighbor, for we cannot abolish the order of nature which God himself has established as inviolable, that is absolute or untouchable. My friends, my generation and the ones that went before me 
have failed to teach you the whole counsel of God, I repent, I apologize, would you forgive us? And in the future, we want to do much better. We haven't lamented because we've had an inadequate understanding of God's word. Secondly, we've had, we've had an inadequate understanding of history. You know, right now, I see an odd thing going on. There are those that would just look at the history of America and the history of the Christian church and say, it's all bad, 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 bad. And I have to tell you, that makes me mad when I hear it and see it. I'm thankful and proud to be an American. I'm glad for what God has done and is doing in our country. I'm thankful to be an evangelical because I believe the gospel, even if I don't like some of the other people that are in the same tent, okay? It's just the truth. And so it, it, it irks me when people see only the bad. But it also makes me sad when people only see what is good because that's simply not the truth. What we need to do is apply the theology we believe ourselves individually to our understanding of our national history and our church history. Am I a sinner or a saint? And the answer is I'm both. As a sinner, I'm capable of and guilty of great evil doing, especially if I didn't have God's saving grace, that would be true. Any good that I do is because of God's common grace that he gives to all people or God's saving grace that he gives to his children. So why should we be surprised if in the history of America or the history of the evangelical church, we see good and evil both? That's what absolutely we should expect. And you know what? My sanctification, my holiness is directly connected to my facing my sins and repenting of them. And that's true for us as a church and it's true for us as a nation. You see, the reality is that there are a lot of things, especially if you're a majority culture person, a lot of things you, you and I were never told. Or if we were told, we've never really stopped and thought it through. Let me give you a few examples. I grew up in Gadsden, Alabama, and I knew growing up and was taught that our town was named after James Gadsden, a great explorer, and the person for whom the Gadsden Purchase out in the Southwest was named. What I never learned until a few weeks ago was this. James Gadsden was also one of the people who designed and carried out the Trail of Tears. James Gadsden said that slavery was a social blessing and he called abolitionists the greatest curse of the nation. Nobody ever told me. And when he died in 1859, his descendants sold his slaves, all 239 of them. I went online to research that And here, here are the list of the names and the ages of the people who were slaves, who were sold. There's Rachel, age nine, Aesop, age five, Henry, age 45, Phoebe, age 10, Manasseh, age three, Ned, age 70, Fortune, age one. The list goes on. Every time I've looked at that the last few weeks, I've lost it. Because the truth comes crashing home to me. These were not workers in the field or in the house who clocked in and clocked out every day. These were people who were held in bondage their whole lives. How can we not lament? The horrors of slavery are awful and we know it. Men held with chains around their necks and chained to one another if they're dogs, whipped to work, whipped to the point of death. Families separated from one another with little thought. The 1850s census I've recently learned showed that there were half a million people who were mulatto of black and white descent. Maybe some of those, some of them were the result of consensual relationships, but we be a fool to think anything other than this logical conclusion. If there were half a million people of mixed descent, that means there are millions, millions of occasions of rape. Millions. And this thing that breaks my heart with daughters, those girls could do nothing to object. Their mothers could do nothing to object. How can we not lament? The horrors of slavery were followed, of course, by other horrors. Between 1860 and for 1870 and 1960, there were over 4,000 lynchings of black men. Can you imagine episode after episode of a mob that was angry and then jeering, and then when the deed was done, they were happy and they were cheering? 
How can we not lament? There may be things like that we've known, but we've never really envisioned. We've never let ourselves feel it. And there may be other things, if you're like me, you just never knew. Here's some things I've learned recently that I never knew. Oh, I knew about separate but equal that was never equal, and I, I knew about all that. What I didn't know about until recently were things like this. In 1935, when the Social Security Act was passed by Congress, there were two classes of workers that were excluded, domestic workers and farm workers. Where do you think most black people were employed? As domestic workers and farm workers, and they were intentionally excluded and had no right to Social Security. The GI Bill benefited a lot of returning vets after World War II. There were a lot of black veterans. But those black veterans couldn't use that GI Bill in the great majority of colleges and universities. Their skin was the wrong color. A couple of years ago, I was watching on the History Channel. You know you're getting older when you start watching the History Channel. I was watching the history, on the History Channel some, some shows about Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, and on one of the episodes about an FDR, it showed some of the things he did in the New Deal, and it showed a long line of people coming into a factory to apply for jobs, and then the camera zoomed in to the sign next to the door, and the sign said, Negroes need not apply. And the reality is the New Deal was a good deal for you if you were white. It just didn't matter. It didn't apply if you were black. How can we not lament? You may be thinking, Bob, that was a long time ago. That is so irrelevant. Those laws have been done away with. Let me tell you a story of why that's still relevant. The past is never past. The past is never dead. It lives in the future. My dad was born in 1906. Yeah, that means I'm old and my dad was old when I was born. Do the math, okay? He was born in 1906 as the son of a sharecropper. My dad said, when I was a kid, we were so poor, we didn't even own a pot to... In, and he was right. All they owned literally was the clothes on their own back. My father only finished high school, that was it, but he was a hard worker. He was hired by a Western auto parts store, and then he was hired in the auto parts department of Sears and Roebuck. And yes, I said Sears and Roebuck, not just Sears. And he managed to save enough money to put a down payment on a gas station, and he got a loan from a bank literally across the street to pay for the remainder of that gas station. Later, he bought a car dealership that was next door to that. Then he sold those businesses and became a residential realtor and residential contractor. Not bad for the son of a sharecropper. But it was only in the last few years that I began to think about this. What if he had been the black son of a black sharecropper born in 1906 instead of the white son of a white sharecropper? And I stopped to realize there would have been no job at Western Auto or Sears, no bank loan, no permit to buy that gas station. Everything, my friend, would have been different. Now, what difference has it made to me and what difference has it made to my sons and daughters economically that he was the white son of a white sharecropper and that he wasn't black? And I'll tell you the answer is all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. My father would not have seen himself as a privileged man. He worked hard for everything he had. Practically nothing was ever given to him. But my father did have the privilege of opportunity. Opportunities that never would have come to him in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s if his skin had been black. How can we not lament? Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who's a hero of many in our theological tradition, once said, there's nothing more ugly than orthodoxy without compassion. How could we have so utterly failed to have basic Christian human compassion when we saw our brothers and sisters in Christ and we saw fellow image bearers suffering like they did? There's nothing more ugly than orthodoxy without compassion. I have to tell you, friends, that's something we need to hear today. Are you aware that many, many people do not believe our gospel because they do not see in us any compassion. That's the reason they don't listen to our message. We have not lamented because of our shallow understanding of the scriptures and our shallow understanding of history. And thirdly is this, we've had an inad inadequate understanding of other people. Sometimes we just have to get close to people to know their story. A couple of years ago, I think, now, Dr. Crawford Loris, African-American pastor from Fellowship Bible Church, came and preached to our officers and spoke, and he said, we can't love from a distance. We have to get up close and personal. And that is so very, very true. 
Someone as well said that mercy starts when we hear someone's story. And recently I've heard two comments by two different white men and they've been rattling around in my head and one of them is this. He said, I did not come to care about African-American people until I came to care deeply about an African-American person. It is so true. Whatever ethnicity you are, God is asking you, calling you to lean across racial lines that you would know the story of others. You would get up close and personal. You would care. I heard a quote by a man, a statement by a man who said he's from California. He looked like he was in his 60s, and he said this. Growing up, I was not taught to think badly of African-American people. I was just taught by example not to think about them at all. My friends, that's the problem. That's the sin of indifference. God calls us to do more. It is not enough not to be a racist. God is calling us to seek out people who are different from us, to hear their stories, to care about their stories up close and personal. As I've heard my brother Chip Sweeney, one of our pastors, say so many times, if you're a majority culture person, we have to understand that we don't understand. But we'll understand better if we get up close and we hear their stories. There are a number of brothers that have become very close to me Brian White sitting right here, one of our pastors who's African-American. Two of our church planters, Daryl Ford and Leonce Krupp, who are African-American. Alex Villasana, a church planter who's Hispanic-American. I have to tell you, every one of them tells stories of facing racial discrimination in their lives. Brian telling the story of as a boy, seeing his grandfather, who he respected so highly, being called boy by a white teenager and responding and calling that boy, sir. And he was confused by that. It broke my heart. Hearing the story of Daryl Ford being pulled over by a police officer in the neighborhood, he had broken no traffic laws. He was just a black guy with an old car driving in a white neighborhood. The story could go on and on, but I have to tell you this. The reason those stories have affected me so deeply, these are my friends. And something will happen when we get close enough that we would love someone and they would love us and they'll trust us with their stories. We have found a limit for those reasons. A shallow understanding of the scriptures, a shallow understanding of history, and all too often, a shallow understanding of other people. But that is the bad news. So let's move on to the good news. Here's the good news. Here's why God is calling us to lament and how can we can properly do so. And I'll preach if I can see my notes. I'll tell you real honestly. I lost it for two weeks preparing the sermon. I, I hope I'd be better today. Why should we lament and how can we properly do so? Three points very quickly as we end. The first is this. The love of Christ constrains us. It is all about the love of Christ. That is what is central, that we would be people love. We are commanded to love Hear the word of God. This sermon is entirely about the word of God moving the people of God to do the will of God. Here are the scriptures. From 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that we who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, the one who died for people from all over the world. And he was raised again. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 1 John 3, you've already heard earlier, 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John 15, Jesus said, my command is this, Love each other as I've loved you. Greater love is no one this than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you do what I've commanded. This is all about the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. My friends, if Schaefer is right that there's nothing more ugly than orthodoxy without compassion, then I would submit to you there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more beautiful than Christ-centered orthodoxy, a fire with compassion. And that leads me to this next statement. Here is why we're to lament, to lament. The crying need of our culture entreats us. The crying need of our culture entreats us. John Stott, that great 
Anglican preacher of the 20th century is one of my heroes, and he once said, every preacher needs to prepare his sermon with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. The newspaper doesn't tell him the truth. It's the Bible that tells us the truth. But the newspaper tells us what are the crying needs of our day to which we apply the teachings of Scripture. Is the issue of race something that our culture needs to hear about? If you don't think so, you've been living in a cave. And here is our need to bring the word of God to that subject and be obedient to it. Let me ask you, do you want people to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to the Father but through him? Do you want people to believe in our culture, for them to believe what we believe from the scriptures about the sanctity of marriage and the holiness of sexuality and that God made us male and female in his image? Do you want them to believe in the sanctity of life from preborn to the aged and infirm and everything in between? Then, my friends, let them see our fidelity to, let them see our obedience to this command, this part of the law of God, that God has not called us to treat the poor, the oppressed, and people of a different race or ethnicity than we are in the same manner as we treat everyone else. He's called us to do much more. He's called us to actively seek them out, to love them, to listen to them, to learn from them, to lament with them, to serve them to an even greater degree. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. Can we allow and mourn with those who mourn? Can we simply allow what has broken the heart of God to break our hearts? The love of Christ constrains us. The crying need of our culture entreats us. And lastly, oh, lastly, most importantly, the cross of Christ and the gospel of Christ cleanse and empower us. There's not one person in this room that doesn't need the grace of God about this topic. We are all sinners by omission or commission about issues of race and ethnicity. We need to be changed. We need to be forgiven. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to the issue of race, we all need his grace. But here's the good news. We have a Savior, and that Savior forgives and changes sinners. Our Savior is in the habit of taking people who don't care and turns them into people who do care. And if at any point along the way the sermon has brought into you some sense of guilt, if it is true guilt and not false guilt, then please do this with it. Take it to the foot of the cross and leave here today not guilty but cleansed and forgiven, that is our hope for you. That is our hope for you. Saul of Tarsus was a man as a good leader of Judaism. He hated Gentiles and he especially hated Christians. But Saul of Tarsus became the apostle Paul. He encountered Jesus. And he went about preaching and he went about planting churches. And there were two things that were true about every church he planted. Number one, they remembered the poor and the oppressed. And secondly, they gathered into churches together, people of every culture and race and ethnicity and class, together that the world could see the love of Jesus. He changed Saul of Tarsus. He can change you and me. He forgave Saul of Tarsus. He can forgive you and me. Now, in a sermon like this, it's always important to answer this question. Bob, what do you really want me to do when I leave here today? How does this really apply? Well, as always, Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. But I would say this, whether you're here is a Caucasian American, African American, Hispanic American, Asian American, this applies to all of us here. And I also want to say this very importantly. If you're here in our congregation as a person of color, thank you. Thank you for being here. We need you here. We want to learn from you. And we know that you're a pioneer. And sometimes pioneers don't get loved very well. Thank you for being here. We need you. And so for all of us, here are the takeaways. Love, listen, learn, lament, and labor. God is calling us to love other people that may seem different from us on the outside, but we're all the same on the inside. He's calling us to listen to one another, hear one another's stories, the joy and the pain. He's calling us to learn from one another. Oh, brothers of color, we need you that we can learn from you. He's calling us to lament with, to lament with one another when we lament. And finally, he's calling us to labor together to make things better 
And here's the reason we do that, and there's only one reason. It pleases Jesus. It pleases our Savior who died for the world, the people from every tribe and tongue and nation would show their oneness, not just in heaven, they would show their oneness right here, and the world would see. I'll close with this. In the first few centuries of Christendom, Christianity changed the world. How did that happen? Why did it happen? I think it happened for this reason. There are a group of people that said and meant Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. This empire, this nation is not my Lord. The opinions of my family, that is not Lord. My cultural preferences and intellectual preferences and political preferences, those things are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And from the Lordship of Jesus came a people so full of love, the world was changed. Can we be people marked by that kind of love? And if that would happen here in Atlanta with our church, may it be that there would be streams of people from every ethnicity pouring into churches together, that the world would see this. They love one another. May it be the testimony of those who come in. I'm here for this reason. I've seen their love for each other. And I'm here for this reason. I felt their love for me. And that's why I'm here. My friends, believe it with all your heart. On the other side of gospel lament is gospel love and gospel joy. He is calling us to rejoice and lament. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we confess to you today. We have not lamented our sins. We have not lamented the suffering of other, of other people as we should. But now, oh, Lord, we want to ask you that we would emulate what was expressed in this song, Yahweh. That you would take our feet, our hands, our lips, everything about us, and that you would work in us and through us that our city, the city of Atlanta, might be a city shining on a hill, shining because of the deeds of your people, loving one another. And Lord, to that end, we are saying, break our hearts. We're willing to embrace even the pain of childbirth, pain before the child is born. And may a city be born here that expresses the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it for the great glory of our merciful and gracious high priest. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Good job. Amen. Well, that is a rich and extremely important message, as we would know. And I realize that we hear this, we hear it different ways. I understand that. I want you to know in terms of uh, everything he has shared has my endorsement 100%. And uh, it does the leadership of this church uh, as far as I would know of any leaders of this church. Having said that, we also would say very graciously, uh, we would say there is a difference and the teachings between lamenting our sin, uh, the sins of, of the, the past and so forth, uh, and that of confessing. Many of you heard during the series that we did a year or so ago uh, that I personally hold to that as my personal conviction. Uh, there are not necessarily directives in Scripture to say that we confess the sins of our foreparents and those ahead of us. But we certainly know it is described in Scripture. There is a difference between the two, and you have to determine what you believe is biblical. Uh, we say this, regardless of how you feel, I hope that doesn't become an issue to anybody. You let your heart take your heart where it is. Write to Scripture and see what you see in Scripture. But I think that every one of us here, and I'm speaking to the family of God, I think every one of us would say, why would we not lament the sins of the past and those that hurt because of those sins? And so I want to take us into a time of prayer here, and it's just going to be a time for you and for me to just pray quietly and silently. 
and just to say, Lord, here's what's on my heart. If you want to confess your own sin, certainly we should all do that. Is it an issue of confessing the sins of, of others that we're a part of the bigger family? Let your conscience be your guide. But I would hope that all of us as believers would say, as I said in the first service, and I'll say again, Father, forgive me that I have not been more broken over the pain and struggles of others. So with that, I'm gonna invite you, let's bow, and you just speak to the Lord as you're led quietly. Our Father in heaven, as we sit here as your people, we would agree, even as Bob has said, that it, it really, it may not be our fault of much of what we know has happened, but we as your people want to take it on as our problem. And we really do want to embrace that which is truly our failures. I confess my own to you. Many of us have done that, and we now are going to just take your forgiveness, and we're not going to walk out of here feeling in any way as if we have to feel shame or guilt, knowing that that has been released by the work of your son, Jesus, and we accept that fully and completely right now. And we are grateful for the progress made in this church and where it has come from to where we are, and we pray for where we go. Grant it to be more of an honor to you than ever in the past. And so, Father, we commit it all to you now. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that Bob mentioned was the relationship aspect, how important that relationship is. You know, the year, whenever it was, that we did our Loving Your Neighbor series, two years, uh, I know then that God used that in my life, even as I'm teaching that series, and I confessed my own sin at that point. And I know this, that it, it led me into a commitment our staff tried to make, and that is let's birth relationships that are going to take us into the lives of those who experience things that we maybe have never experienced, hardships. We have hardships that they've never experienced. They need us. We need them who are different than us. And I know starting that time, I've, since that time, we've had a relationship with an African-American pastor. He's a, 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 he has his own work, and then he does the church. He has two jobs, two full-time jobs. It's a small church. It's not an area that's very popular. And, you know, it's, it's as different as this church as I could ever imagine. He and I have become dear friends. I don't think there's been one week that I can remember that we haven't texted, if not talked, and prayed for each other week in and week out. And for me, I pray for him daily on a daily basis. I tell you, it changed me. And that's why this is important for all of us. Don't they? hey, we've already done this. What are you doing again? You're hitting it a second. Let me tell you, if it did for me what it did then, what this is going to do for me now, and I hope it does the same for all of us, that we become more in the likeness of Christ as a result of it, okay? Good, good. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.